Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. Tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off in 1 Samuel 16, uh, starting in verse 14. And so if you want to go ahead and turn over to uh, six, chapter 16, we'll be looking primarily at 17, but I do want to cover the events of 1 Samuel 16. So you can go ahead and turn over there. We'll finish 16 and focus primarily on chapter 17 tonight. So last night we looked at the anointing of David. And so David finally appears in the story of Samuel in chapter 16. And I asked you to picture one person in your life that maybe you've been seeing with your eyes and not with your heart, that you've just been sort of looking at the outer appearance and uh, not really observing what's going on with them and what are their desires and and uh, what are their values and their worldview and these kinds of things. Uh uh, Oscar Wilde has, has a quote that um, it's only a shallow person who cannot judge by appearances. And of course, what he means by that is um, a shallow person looks at the appearance and, and makes some snap judgments and moves on. But someone who's not shallow, someone who sees with their heart, yes, they're looking at the appearance, but they're looking beyond that and they're looking at details and they're, and they're really studying and observing. Obviously, our, our eyes and our ears, these are really the only sort of tangible senses that we have, but the thought of looking with our heart rather than just with our eyes is to um, be able to see someone for who they really are and see someone as God intends them to be, which is something that is not always discernible purely by looking at how they are now. Um, Ravi Zacharias, who passed away this week, he always used to say, we are not meant to look with the eyes, we're meant uh, to look with the heart through the eyes. And so that's what uh, our lesson was about last night, and we'll be picking up uh, from there. But I, I did ask you to think about someone in your life that you've been seeing with your eyes and not with your heart. And what are you going to do about that this week, this weekend? So don't forget that. I hope that that's something that is still on your mind. Quick review, and then we'll get into the text for this evening. So... <clears throat> uh, Book of Samuel begins with Hannah's prayer. She prays to the Lord, give me a son and I'll give him to you. And 
Uh, he does and she does. Samuel's dedicated to the Lord. He becomes Israel's first prophet. The ark is sent into battle by evil men, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who's supposed to be the high priest, supposed to be representing God and spiritual formation, discipleship for the entire community. He's not doing a very good job of it. His sons are doing a terrible job of it. And so the ark is ripped from the tabernacle, sent into battle and lost to the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas die. Their father, Eli, dies. And so now Samuel is judge and priest of Israel. Fearing for the consequences, the Philistines get rid of the ark after about seven months. And through a course of events, it winds up in the house of a man named Eleazar, where it stays there in Kiriath-Jerim. Meanwhile, Israel asks for a king, thereby rejecting God as their king uh, and rejecting Samuel as the judge that he is. But God says, let him have one anyway. So God anoints Saul as king. God has Samuel anoint Saul to be king. And at first he appears to be the model king of Israel. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. Yet right away we see some foreshadowing that he's weak and has uh, some lack of faith. And um, seeing as how he's basically been fired by the will of the people, Samuel retires and gives a farewell address and a farewell warning. Saul submits, uh, Saul commits several public sins, after which Samuel informs him that he is no longer the Lord's anointed and that there is another. Then Samuel goes to Bethlehem at the Lord's command to the family of Jesse, where the Lord selects Jesse's youngest, David, to be king. Samuel anoints him in the privacy there of the family home. And so that brings us to the scripture for tonight. We'll begin 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. Uh, that's L-Y-R-E for those of you who are only listening. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin, and one young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So it's kind of an interesting <clears throat> scenario that's happening here. Apparently, uh, Saul, who once uh, had the spirit of the Lord on him, now an evil spirit has been sent to torment him. And uh, again, looking from the outside, we might see this as some kind of mental illness or um, rage or some kind of craziness that, that comes on him. And so what his wise people suggest, what the lads around him suggest is essentially music therapy. Get someone that plays the harp and that will calm you, which if you've ever heard 
harp music. I mean, it's, you know, there's no uh, death metal harp music, right? It's harp music is all pretty, pretty calming and uh, serene. So Saul says, fine, get, get me a harp player, someone that plays well, bring him here. And so they mention David, they send for David. David comes and is uh, a great musician. Saul loves him. This is the first of many people that will love David in the course of this story. And we see that he becomes Saul's armor bearer, which is not the reason for going and getting David, but uh, possibly a way for Saul to just sort of keep him around all the time by giving him that sort of position. And then we see uh, Saul communicating with Jesse and David has this relationship with Saul where he is able to soothe him in these times of rage. Now, that is a story that we've read. And it is sort of self-encapsulated. And we're going to read another story. And there are going to be some things about it that are going to seem to be a little contradictory. And we're going to talk about those. But pretend like you haven't heard that story that we just read as we read the next story, chapter 17. This is the story many of us know well. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sukkah in Judah encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephesdamim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall, and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? he asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now, David was the son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, Shema, the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son, David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along, these, uh, along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp 
as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, you see this man who keeps coming out. He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here? He asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now? Protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, so he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. 
When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Shaarim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, Whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live, I don't know, Abner replied. The king said, Well, find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. All right, that's the story for this evening. Very exciting. So I want to show you uh, maybe some cool things here. The first thing that I want to show you is a picture of me in the Valley of Elah. So um, maybe not the most exciting picture, but what you see here on the left is a hillside. And you see it's not very far away from me. You can sort of see by the texture and the little um, bush clumps, the dark green bush clumps there in the top left corner of the photo, that this is not a very big hill. And you see that I'm kneeling, you see this line of rocks there, well, that's the wadi. So a wadi is kind of like a stream, but um, it's what they refer to as these stream-like things over in the Israel-Palestine area. And during the drier seasons, they are dried up like this and they're just stones. When uh, there's rain and during the wet season, they will fill up like a little creek. And so that's how you get some of these sort of smoother, polished stones. And so there's lots of stones in this wadi. It's just a natural formation there. And it's the only wadi in this area. The Valley of Elah is not very big. I, I unfortunately, was not able to get a better picture than the one that I have now. But what you see here is the hill over sort of on the, on the left, kind of behind me. And then the wadi is sort of up against this hill. And then uh, behind my back to the right on the photo, you see, uh, you can kind of tell that it levels off and you can see just uh, sort of the green, it's almost like a green plain uh, just on the right hand side of the photo. If you were to extend this photo out to the right, what you would see is that that green plain keeps extending and that's where you have the valley. That's the valley of Elah. And it's probably about the size of a football field, maybe a little bigger, maybe like a giant uh, professional soccer field or something. It's uh, not that not that big. And on the other side of that very flat field, there's another hill very similar to the one you see in this photo. And so when you're standing there, it's very easy to see the Israelites were on the hill that you see in this photo. The Philistines were on the hill to the south, which is uh, would be off to the right of this photo. And the Valley of Elah is here in between. So you can see David coming down the side of the hill, stopping at the wadi to select his stones before rushing and meeting Goliath in the middle of this giant flat plain. 
And it's almost like stadium seating. It's almost like a football field. You've got people on one hill and people on the other hill, and everyone can see down into the valley. Everyone would see uh, Goliath fall face down, all nine plus feet of him laying out flat on the ground. David climbing on top of him, cutting his head off. And all of Israel then, uh, in the same way that uh, University of Memphis rushed the field when we beat University of Tennessee 21-17, my uh, freshman year of college, in the same way you would see the Israelites rushing the field and going to attack the Philistines. And so uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a mental, Im- a, a mental image, visual of what it would have looked like, everything that was going on. And if you must know, yes, I did select some stones and bring them home with me. I have them in Murfreesboro. And so I don't have any here with me. But um, I want to show you some other uh, pictures here. So this, this is, um, his name is Sultan Kosin. Sultan Kosin is according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the tallest living man. He's still alive. Uh, he is uh, certified tallest at eight foot, two inches, two and seven eighths inches, almost eight foot three. And um, you can see that he's almost twice as tall as a lot of the people that he's in these photos with. Uh, something else that I want you to see is, and you can kind of see it in this photo, his hips and his ankles and his legs. Uh, the human body is not really meant to be this large. Uh, men that are this large, I mean, there's tall people, but men that are this large typically suffer from an ailment known as gigantism and it's a disorder of the pituitary gland that causes them to continue to grow. And here you see Sultan with a, a young child who has bought one of the uh, Guinness Book of World Records from 2010. And this might give you an idea, a little bit of the height difference between the young shepherd David and the giant Goliath. You'll notice also that Sultan has braces on each arm to help him walk. And you can see his ankles are almost at an L shape. Again, this is frequent with sufferers of gigantism. It's difficult for them to walk. They also have issues with their their eyes, it's difficult for them to see, and the their enormous body, their enormous frame takes a toll on their health. The, the heart has a hard time supplying blood to a, a body of this size, um, going the distance that it has to go. Lots of health issues. But Sultan is uh, still alive and with us. This is Robert Wadlow. And there's no photographic trickery going on in this photo. He is standing up against that door frame, just like the woman is standing up against the door frame. You'll see he's nearly twice her height. This is the tallest man to have ever lived, according to verifiable records. And he was verified at eight foot, 11.1 inches. So almost nine feet tall. Now, for comparison's sake, uh, depending on the translation you have, Goliath is, is different heights. I think the original is in cubits. And so you have to kind of ask, you know, what's a cubit? And uh, there also, what what's a cubit when? Because there are different, uh, the, the, the cubit was sort of different lengths at different times. And so you, try, you have to kind of figure out which was which. But uh, I, I noticed here it said he was nine foot nine. In this translation, in my notes, I had that he was nine foot one. Goliath clearly 
very, very large, more than just a big person, more than just a tall guy, more than just a a um, a big like pro wrestler type action hero guy. I mean, this this was obviously somebody that probably had some sort of condition like this suffering from gigantism. Malcolm Gladwell uh, gives a talk on David and Goliath and talks about the issue of gigantism and points out that Goliath has a shield bearer, which, of course, David plays the shield, uh, the armor bearer for Saul. So that was a position that many people had. But the shield bearer comes out and, and actually holds the shield for Goliath. And Gladwell presumes that maybe this is someone who's helping him walk, uh, either because Goliath is having trouble walking or perhaps because he's having trouble seeing because, uh, again, many sufferers from gigantism have uh, trouble with their eyes. Here's here's a fun photo. The photo on the left is a size 12 shoe. So I'm 5'11". I wear a size 11 shoe. And so, uh, you know, your average six foot tall man might wear a size 12 shoe. And this is uh, Robert Wadlow's, I think it's a size 37 humongous shoe. That's his actual shoe side by side there. So you can see how how large he is. Here he is doing a radio interview, and you can see here he is holding a cane, and once again here uh, with the cane. Robert was taller than his father by age eight. He was eight foot four by the time he went into high school and sadly died at the age of 22, hoping to one day become a lawyer. He had been admitted into law school, if I remember correctly. And so this is the world's tallest man. But anyway, this gives you some idea of Goliath and his size. Now, remember, Saul was also a tall guy. So um, <clears throat> he was head and shoulders above everyone else. So he was also someone who was large. Obviously, from a narrative standpoint, that works great because someone who's big is seen as a, a warrior. And it works great with the, the deeper premise of the story that you can't judge by what you see with the eyes. Because what you see with the eyes is not always the way things are going to be. Looking with the eyes doesn't tell you the whole story. It's exactly what we see playing out in the story. So what happens with Saul's anointing at the beginning of chapter 16? A different version of it happens in this story. And Saul, being the great warrior that he was, and still being in position as king, even though Samuel's told him, no, you're not king anymore, he's clearly still acting as king. He's still clearly... Uh, reigning as king, um, instead of being Israel's champion, he is sort of leading them in fear. And uh, it's very unfortunate that he's uh, taken that role. Um, so David goes down. Uh, by the way, it says for 40 days, Goliath came out and uh, made these uh, challenges it's important to know that, that the, the, the quantity of 40 days, you see that often in the Bible. That's kind of like uh, today when we'd say, oh, I've done this a thousand times. Okay, that doesn't mean that you've actually done it 999 times plus one more time. It just means you've done it a bunch. You've done it just so many times I've lost count, right? Um, we might say, oh, a month of Sundays or something like that, right? So 40 days, 40 nights is a, a phrase that is just sort of used to, to mean a, a long time, in the same way that 40 years is used to, to mean a, a generation, sort of a span of time. So sometimes in Scripture, it means literally 40 days, and sometimes in Scripture that 40 years means literally 40 years, and sometimes, depending on the context, it just means a long time. So it's impossible to know here 
whether it was act 40 actual days or if it was just a long time. But the point is the same. It's, it's, it's been a long time. He comes out and instead everyone is afraid. And Saul appears to be leading them in, in fears as far as that goes. <clears throat> now I'm going to try and copy some pictures into the keynote here, which I forgot to do earlier and we'll see how well that goes. <clears throat> oh, good. It worked perfectly. So I'm going to show you a few pictures here. And they're kind of small, but you'll get the gist. <clears throat> so here's the statue of David, which we looked at last night. And if you've ever noticed, the reason for his posture is because he's holding his sling. So, you know, as a kid, I grew up thinking uh, like a, it was like a slingshot, you know, like a Dennis the Menace would have or something like that. But it's a sling like this. It's a piece of leather with rope on either end. You see this down here in the in the picture in the bottom right. Um, let's see if I can make that bigger for you. And so you'll see that there is a stone in the sling. And then you'll see a, a, another rock there that's got some smaller stones with it. And you'll see that there's uh, a loop in one end of the sling and the other sling is just kind of uh, the other end of the sling is just kind of braided. So if you look at the statue of David at this picture right here of his face, you'll notice he's holding something in his hand. Well, that's the leather part with a stone in it. And you'll notice it kind of drapes over his shoulder. And if you were to look at the backside of the statue, you would see that the, uh, the leather goes down his back and wraps around to his hip. And so that's supposed to be the leather straps of his sling. And you may or may not have noticed, it's just such a wonderful detail that, that Michelangelo does with this sculpture. But in his hand, by his hip, if you'll notice, he's holding a stone. He's got a stone in his hand, right? So you can almost see the statue. The statue almost wants to move when you really look at it. It's almost like he's sort of tapping that stone against his hip, ready to put it in the sling and throw it. He's already apparently got one uh, in his sling as well as he's eyeing his enemy from across the valley. So just really uh, wonderful details in the statue of David by the sculptor Michelangelo. Now, David also takes his shepherd's staff. It's probably just a, a decoy. I mean, if you saw somebody coming at you with a leather bag and a staff, which would you be more afraid of? But if it were David, you should be more afraid of the small leather pouch. And what does David say he's going to do with Goliath? He doesn't just say he's going to kill him. He says he's going to take his head off. And what does he have <laughs> that's going to decapitate Goliath. He has nothing. So he has enormous faith in the fact that Goliath will die and he'll be able to use Goliath's sword to decapitate him. Shows enormous faith in uh, doing that. Now, as I mentioned last night, I've seen the David in person and a very interesting thing happens when you see it in person. You approach it, you come down that, um, I think I have the picture still in here. Yeah, you come down the hallway here in the academy so off to the right of this photo is sort of where the ticket booth is. And there's another sort of first room where there's a big sculpture and some paintings. Then you come into this hallway and there, there it is down at the end of the hallway, the thing that you've always wanted to see. The hallway is always clogged with people as you see it here. And you can see the enormity of the statue in comparison to the people. And as you walk toward it, the natural thing to want to do is to follow the eye line. He's looking off to my right. He's looking off to his left. And so you start to walk around the David to the right. 
And it's very interesting how Michelangelo carved him. As you look at him sort of head on, you'll see his uh, jawline is um, soft and his face is a little soft. The, the brow is a little furrowed and he looks almost nervous. He looks almost like, am I going to be able to take care of this situation? The danger of the giant is uh, palpable. And so the natural draw is to walk around him to the right counterclockwise. And you're, and you're just drawn to the face. It's so realistic, that unsure countenance. And this magnificent thing happens as you walk around at the base of the statue. It's almost like the face begins to change. And by the time you cross the eye line, now he's got this harder jaw and the brow is now not just furrowed, it's, it's pointed and his gaze has resolved. It's almost like it moves as you move around it. It's really incredible. And um, you, you see, he's got one of those carefully selected, uh, carefully selected projectiles in his sling. And it's so lifelike that I almost expected him to leap off the podium and run past me as I walked by. Here's a comparison of the two different sides. So you can kind of see the unsureness on the left and the, the, the snarl, the, the uh, disgust and the anger, the um, about to pounce into actionness of the photo on the right. Maybe you don't see it that way, but that's how I felt being there. I've talked to others who have been there and they've experienced the same thing that I did. And the path around the statue is short, but the journey spans all of human history. Bit by bit, step by step, faith evolves into action. And by those deeds, the world now knows that there is a God in Israel. There is a God among his people. And so um, this is something that uh, I've talked about a lot in, in various series, but this idea that Faith is trust. Faith is not a warm fuzzy. It's not a feeling. Okay. Faith is trust. And trust really only exists when it is practiced, when it is demonstrated, when it is exhibited in some way. So uh, this chair that I'm sitting in, I can say that I trust this chair, but as long as I'm out hovering over it with tension in my thighs, keeping my weight and my feet on the floor, I don't really trust this chair. But as soon as I relax, and fall back into this thin wooden chair, I'm putting my trust in it. I'm putting my faith in it. And that's what faith is. It is demonstrated trust. So trust is really only exhibited in action. Again, this is why James says, okay, you want to show me your faith without doing anything? Good luck with that. I'll show you my faith by what I do. So where does faith come from? Where does trust come from? Where does confidence come from? Let's talk a little bit about David the shepherd and this sling. So I want to go back to the picture of the sling real quick. So <clears throat> again, you'll notice that one of the straps has a loop in it and the other one doesn't. And so what you would do is you would take the end that has the loop and you'd put that on a, on a finger and then you'd hold the other end just free in your hand and you'd have the stone and you would sling it around and then you'd sling and let go. And when you let go, the part with the loop stays connected to you and the other end flies free and it's the leather pouch slings the rock in the direction that you want it to go. This is a weapon. And David mentions that he is a shepherd and that he chases down lions and bears. And so he 
no doubt used this sling to fight off animals. This was something he just had in his shepherd's bag. It's almost like a man carrying a pocket knife. It's just something he always had with him. And so he would have used this uh, sling. You know, uh, I remember dad, after he retired, he would come home and to keep squirrels off of the the bird feeders. He liked to have bird feeders because he liked to watch the birds, but then these nasty squirrels would get all over him, knock him over and make, and make a mess. So he'd come home from work and he'd sit outside with crossword puzzle or the newspaper or something. And he had a bucket of Navy beans and a slingshot. <laughs> he'd just ping these, uh, the squirrels in the back of the head and they'd run off, just kind of discourage them from uh, attacking his bird feeders. And as he did that, he got pretty good. He got to where he could, he could hit him from a long way away. And the same thing with David. He's out there. He's tending the sheep. And he would be used to using the sling. And he would have gotten very good at it over all the time that he had to use it. So the point I'm making here is that he's prepared for this very moment just through his normal everyday life. This was not the first time he'd ever used a sling. It was something that he was familiar with, something he'd used a lot. So um, one of Malcolm Gladwell's points when he sort of retells the story is if, is if Goliath is a literal giant, as in someone suffering from gigantism, and if David's sling technique was impeccable because it was something that he did every day all the time. Also, Goliath is wearing, you know, probably 125 pounds or more of armor. He's got this heavy spear. He's got this heavy sword. Somebody has to carry a shield for him. He's, you know, weighed down with all this heavy stuff. David tries on Saul's armor, says, no, I don't want this. David's free to run around. He's small. He's quick. He's agile. Uh, who Who is it that really had the advantage here? It seems almost David clearly has the advantage if you look at all the factors considered. So I'm not saying that the Lord didn't do something miraculous here. He very well may have. I, I, I do have to point out that the text doesn't say that's what happened. The text doesn't indicate that to us. I think we read that into it a lot of times, but the text doesn't really indicate that to us. What the text does tell us is that David is a master shepherd and that he's a master with the sling and he's killed very violent beasts that are much bigger than him and doing so to Goliath will make no difference. So again, he was prepared uh, for this through his normal everyday life. Uh, going back to Michelangelo real quick, he had this quote that I love. Genius is eternal practice. Genius is eternal practice. Genius is not something that happens in a flash, in a moment, but it is something that you achieve by constantly working at what you are doing. Genius is eternal practice. So when I ask these questions, where does faith come from? Where does trust come from? Where does confidence in your faith come from. It comes from eternal practice. It comes from everyday life. Think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, right? Remember the line, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? Well, if we're the sheep and the Lord is the shepherd, uh, the rod would be used to smack our behinds and get us to move along or tap us on the head and get our attention. The staff would have a crook in it. You've seen a shepherd's hook, right? Staff would be used to pull us out of uh, places that we might want to go or to get us back in line. I mean, these are disciplinary tools, right? The sheep wouldn't necessarily like those things. But from a human perspective, we can go to the Lord as our shepherd and we can say, your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. Why? Because we live this everyday life. We live this eternal practice of trusting the Lord and knowing that when he 
redirects us, when he disciplines us, when he tries to get us back in line, when he says, follow me, when he leads us somewhere, we trust him. We have faith in him. We have confidence. So the rod, the staff, this is about discipline. This is about motivation. And it's about trust. And this is something that we need to build in our everyday lives, in our everyday disciplines, in our everyday study, in our everyday prayer. And it's something that we're going to have a hard time doing alone. So we need someone that's going to help us with our discipline. We need someone that's going to help us with our motivation and someone that is going to help us follow, help us trust and follow Jesus. So that word discipline, see what the root of that word is? It's disciple, right? Discipline, disciple. So when you are disciplined, that means someone is teaching you something. Someone is teaching you how to do something. So if you would like to have the faith of David, if you would like to have the boldness of David, if you would like to have the, the certainty and the confidence of David, if you would like to be able to speak up for the Lord in front of opposition, in front of enemies, in the midst of struggle, the way that David does, then you need to do what David did. And that is, in your everyday life, practice discipline, practice motivation. And uh, you, spiritually, need to find someone to help you do those things. You need someone discipling you, and you ought to be discipling someone else, helping someone else find discipline and motivation, helping someone else learn how to trust and follow Jesus. So um, we have these two stories. We have the end of chapter 16, where uh, David comes and plays the harp for Saul, kind of music therapy. And then we have the story of David and Goliath. And at the end of the story of David and Goliath, Saul says, who is this kid? Abner says, I don't know. Well, it's sort of uh, not feasible that Saul and Abner wouldn't know who he was if he was already Saul's armor bearer and playing the harp for him. So it makes these stories seem a little incongruous, right? Well, Robert Alter writes in his commentary, not so for the early biblical readers. So for Greek myths, there were often different versions of myths, but never usually in the same writing. Modern Western stories tend to be linear. They tend to be, they tend to, they need to go together and they need to be the same in every iteration. Not so for the Bible. I mean, take a look at Genesis where you have the creation story of Genesis 1 and the creation story of Genesis 2. They don't contradict each other. They're just two different ways of telling the story that happened at the creation. In Genesis 1, you see man and woman are made and it's very summarized in brief. And Genesis chapter two really focuses in on the creation of man and then his wife and etc. I think you see a similar thing happening here. Just because they show up in this order in the text does not mean that this is the order that they took place in the story. Again, chronological order is not an interest of ancient Hebrew readers, ancient Hebrew writers. It just wasn't a big interest like it is for us. We want to know facts and we want to know them in order. That was not something that the original writers would have been as concerned with. So the question is, what were they concerned with? Why did they take these stories and put them in this order? If they're out of chronological order, or if they're two different tellings of, of similar events, why, why are they here in this way that makes it seem incongruous? We have to look at the heart of each story. And the heart of the first story is it is a conclusion 
of everything else that happens in chapter 16. God says David is the one. Samuel, the prophet, the priest, anoints David as king. Then David comes into the kingdom right beside Saul and is uh, playing his harp as a way of soothing Saul's spirit. And so what you have is David in the spiritual realm, and that is the story that is told first. Then the second story, which has become the more widely known story, is David entering the kingdom as the warrior and as someone who would eventually become the king and would lead his men into battle and these kinds of things. Also, an important story of David, and certainly he sets up that he's doing it out of faith for the Lord. But the writer wants you to know the only reason chapter 17 takes place is because chapter 16 takes place first. The only reason David is um, seen as the warrior that he is and given the success that he is, is because he is designated by God to take a leadership role over the spiritual matters of Israel. So what the writer is trying to tell you is the spiritual matters come first and the actions then come from the spiritual realm. Or as Alter puts it, there's the vertical, the spiritual, and then there's the horizontal, the physical world. The same is true for us in our disciplines and our motivations and our faith and trust. First, we need this relationship with God, but then it needs to be practiced and worked out here in the real world with each other. So I'll leave you with this question, with these three questions. Number one, what's an area of your life where you need discipline? Number two, what's an area of your life where you need motivation? Number three, who's helping you do that? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.